Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you would like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com is my website. I would love to hear from you. You can also join me every Saturday morning for the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session. 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. You can always find the link at imaginativestorm.com. And the door is always open. We'd love to have you. Today, my guest is Bill Curry. He's a good friend of mine. He's based out of Taos, New Mexico. Bill is a master photographer. He works in the healing arts. And he's also been involved in the fashion world for many, many years. So Bill has a rather wide range of topics that he likes to discuss. And on this interview, I started by asking him why imagery is so important. And here's what he said. I think we live in an aesthetic world. Everything is based on aesthetics. When I worked in New York City, I was in front of the camera as a fashion model. I started in 79 and went to Europe and traveled with Johnny Versace around as his fitting model and then ended up doing a Valentino campaign and Armani and in the Greek islands with him and one of the photographers. And I realized very early on that there is refined aesthetic, which has to do with the light, how you see the light and how the forms and the shapes and the textures and, and sometimes it can be abstract but there's a moment it's really in the moment a great photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson used to say it's about the defining moment sometimes you see it and it's gone it's just gone before you see it as a photographer you learn to be aware of those moments are coming at all time and you want to capture those moments. I'm constantly walking around in amazement at people's faces, at, at the shadows on a, on a beautiful mountaintop. Sometimes there are little things in front of you that, that are so incredibly beautiful that you just sit and watch. And so now I found a way to interact and involve myself with that light. So it's a light dance. So when you were working as a male model traveling around the world, that was when you were first introduced to photography? Yes. My first trip was uh, to Morocco. I went for Yves Saint Laurent. We went up into the mountains with the Berber tribesmen. And I remember being fascinated that they could make rugs with such color when the landscape was kind of bleak. I sat with this one gentleman a whole day and we drank tea, that peppermint tea that you pour from the sky into your cup and he would speak French and we would draw figures with chalk on, on a little chalkboard and we communicated that way. I had a little camera and, and he let me take pictures of, of his family and of his medals. He was a World War I veteran and I thought how fantastic to be in a completely different culture. Absolutely no communication but communicating completely. He played music for me and we danced together and so I found very early on in the modeling career that it was about the travel and the interaction with people worldwide. 
And I found myself in Borneo with the Ebon headhunters and in Jamaica with the Rastas and in Tahiti with the fantastic people there and really got into the whole tribal reality of the planet that was really not evident in the mainstream culture. I was lucky enough to be immersed in that. Many photo shoots I would stay after the job and live with people. And then I'd find myself the following week back at Studio 54, sitting with Andy Warhol on one side and Boyd George on the other side. So it was a, it was a good time in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> I imagine it was. I've seen your work. You take wonderful photographs of people in all different kinds of settings. When you were in front of the camera, what did you learn about photography as someone being shot with the camera? What did you have to do to make that work for the camera? And how did you transfer that to your own photography and other people you shoot? I was really fortunate to work with the great photographers, fashion photographers, Abaddon, Horst, Penn, uh, Bruce Weber coming up in the beginning, Herb Ritz, Arthur Elgort, Patrick de Marchelier, the, really the fantastic people. Then Palma Kalansky, Jean Pagliuso. All of them worked different, but it was always about getting the image that had to do with angles into the camera, had to do with the light. There was a photographer named Barry McKinley, and he, he photographed many, many GQ covers in the day. And he would always tell everyone, he'd find your light. You must find your light if you want to be a star. <laughs> and uh, what does that mean? You're standing there in the middle of a desert. What does it mean, find your light? But you start seeing light. You start to see the light, and not just in the metaphysical sense. I was lucky enough to start doing ceremony with tribal people at one point and see the light that way. As a model, you feel the light on your skin, and you know the bounce light in your eyes, you know the angles. And so when I went to the other side of the camera, it's much quicker to be able to help someone who's never been in front of a camera and had many millions of frames taken of them to tweak in to get a, a great shot of them. When you were modeling, you wore all kinds of different clothes. Why do clothes matter, or do clothes matter? Clothes matter as a function. Clothes matter as a fashion to people that are fashionable. There are different cuts of clothes, different styles of clothes. I remember going to Naples uh, to do a cover for Departures magazine. And we got there three or four days early, and they took me to one of the top tailors in the world. And he custom fitted me for this suit. And they had it made in three or four days. And the suit was probably a $5,000 suit. And even though I had already modeled maybe five years and wore all the great designers, I couldn't imagine somebody, why would they pay $5,000 for a suit? Once the suit came for the photo shoot and I tried it on, I go, I understand. It's the cut, the feel, the fabric, the texture, the longevity, the craftsmanship, the detail of the buttons. Everything is so fine, such high art at that level that you understand why people, if they have the money, would pay $5,000 for a suit. So when you put that suit on, how did it change you? It didn't change me. It changed the way I felt about clothing. It changed the way that I perceived even the shoes that I had on were very expensive Italian shoes. And it's a projection of image. Even as a model, you soon realize about projecting image. It's never about you. It's about the clothes. You're selling clothes. And to sell clothes, you have to make them 
look as good as they can on you. That's a whole technique in itself because sometimes the clothes don't fit properly and you have to adjust it and make it perfect for the photograph. In the end of the day, it's pretty much high-end marketing, which is in some ways false advertising because the photographs that you see in the, in the magazines are not even the way it really is when you're in a photo shoot. So there's aspects of commercialism that comes in on that. So it's not the way the clothes make you feel, it's the way you make the clothes feel to project that to sell the clothes. Some people can put on a t-shirt and it looks great. I have a good friend who lives in Paris and honestly he could wear a rag around his neck and people would think it was the most expensive silk, silk scarf anybody has ever made. What happens psychologically to allow someone to feel comfortable in clothing? Conversely, what's going on when someone doesn't? Well, I know that there have been times when I've been asked to be in front of the camera in an outfit that does not resonate with me whatsoever. Yet, when you're in a photo shoot, it's always about the team. It's about the photographer. There's hair, there's makeup, there's an art director, there's photo assistants, there's stylists. And really, you stand there and let them project onto you their art and creativity, and you're a blank canvas. Once their art is on you, then it's up to you to translate it and actually take it to a new level for that still image that's going to be shown. So in many ways, especially in the 80s, I was on the cover of GQ or in the, in the pages of Vogue or had five TV commercials running nationally, and I would be on an airplane and people would come up and they go, you look really familiar. I've got a deli on 22nd Street. Have you been in my deli? And they'd say, no, I've never been in your deli. And they go, you look really familiar. So they recognize you, but it's not like the actor who has a name with their face. Anonymous. I got all the perks of travel around the world, first class, having the great times on these locations, and my face being seen, but they didn't really know you. The difference is that when you become known and become a celebrity, you lose your chance to be private. So the modeling world was the best of, of that world, that you could remain private until you start to get to a point where people do know your name and they attach the name with the face. Then you have clout to do service for people. I was living in Montana in the 80s. They were cutting the national forest down. And I quickly found out that Smokey the Bear was a front man for the timber industry. And I got very involved locally. And then a man named Howie Walk, who was the co-founder of Earth First, came to the meetings. And then Stuart Brandenburg, who helped found the Wilderness Act of America, got involved. Pretty soon I was in the midst of a real happening in Montana about the clear-cutting of forest. And I organized a bike trip with Gary Fisher, who invented the mountain bike, with Bobby Weir from The Grateful Dead, uh, John Oates, who was a dear friend of mine from Holland Oates. And they had a lot of clout then because they were always on MTV. And they came out, and MTV covered it, CNN covered it. And I found myself so involved that we went to Washington with Carol King. We met with Al Gore. And I saw the politics of what really matters with people that have a name with a face and have access to that kind of power that they can bring attention to things. In the 80s, the, all of the 80s, I was already doing sweat lodge ceremonies with a Karuk medicine elder named Charlie Tom from Mount Shasta. I met people all over the world that were living the parallel track of having fame, fortune, maybe celebrity, making money on Wall Street, but they were very dissatisfied and they saw what was happening with the earth 
back then, what was going on um, with the exploitation and where we're all headed. And so now, all these years later, I'm here in Taos, New Mexico, involved with the Pueblo that's been there 1,200 years, and seeing the effects of the dominant culture on that Pueblo, but seeing them holding out their cultural and their ceremonial realities, and seeing the earth changes now. So for me, back then, Yes, I was at Studio 54. Yes, I was at Johnny Versace's Palace in Miami, but I was also doing vision quests and sweat lodges and sun dances with tribal people and still traveling around the world, going to Peru with the Quechua people and seeing that there was a, a reality of the earth that had nothing to do with our culture here in America. You say, what did I learn in front of the lens, in front of the camera? I learned that it was false advertising. I learned that it was perpetuating something that was such a myth that had nothing to do with what was going on on the earth. And so I had a parallel track, gratefully, all through that time. People listening to this hear you mention names Mm -hmm. with power behind them, Mm -hmm. and you go to Washington or wherever you go, and you have influence because of the notoriety. What about somebody who doesn't have notoriety? What do they do, and how powerful can their reach be? It's in the collective reach, I think, and it begins with individual choice. There's so much beyond us now with the feelings of helplessness of what's going on on the earth. Yet, in the small community here in Taos, we have a farmer's market every Saturday, and you go there and you see people working hard to produce these beautiful, beautiful foods that they offer us. You realize there's a collective community, and in the collective community is where something really, really gets done. But it begins with commitment and someone that's willing to stand up for what they really believe. It's more difficult, I think, in our society to stand up for what you really believe because you get shouted down very quickly. Taos is a tricultural. It's, it's the Native American community. It's the Hispanic community, an Anglo art community. It's all overlapping. We have healers here. We have the the moonbeam hippies. We've got the beautiful poets. We've got the philosophers. We've got the painters. We have the Native Americans. We've got the cowboys, real cowboys, still working the land. We have the environmentalists. We have the frackers. We have, we have a great mix. And somehow it works here in Taos. And, and people are not too harsh on each other that way. There, there's a lot of room for expression. So people individually here, at least in this part of the country, do express themselves, whether it's going out and marching against the chemtrails that we see here in the skies, or fighting to save the Rio Grande Monument, which the Trump administration is trying to take away uh, that status. People do stand up individually and collectively. So it's follow your bliss, Joseph Campbell. That's, that's where it's at, I guess. Shifting from Taos to your homeland, West Virginia, what was it like growing up in West Virginia in the I guess you grew up in the 50s. What was it like growing up in West Virginia in the 50s? And you also told me an interesting story about some of your your relatives. I think the folks in Asheville might be interested in your relatives in West Virginia. What was it like for you in the 50s? Well, West Virginia, when I was growing up, it was fantastic because we got on our bikes and we'd be gone all day riding. We could go in anybody's home and eat. Everybody loved you like the son that you weren't, but the son that you were. Um, I had many great aunts and great uncles that just loved me. I couldn't have had more love. Where I lived in West Virginia, 
in the 50s and 60s. It was really like the 1940s in a lot of ways, even the 1930s and some of the, the hollers, as we used to say. The people still made molasses from the sorghum with the mules grinding it out on the, the big mill. People you know, would have a well that you get your water from. There'd be outhouses. So that was just normal to me. I spent the summers with my mother in Pennsylvania. She was Italian, so I got a whole other flavor of life. West Virginia is all about neighbors. It was all about community. People would be there for you anytime you needed something. My great-grandmother, her name was America Chafin Curry. Devil Lance Hatfield's wife was, I think, Becky Chafin, and that was my great-grandmother's aunt. So she used to tell us stories about the Hatfields and McCoys and what really happened in those days and um, how she used to take him food when he was hiding from federal troops into some cave in some holler up in the mountains. They just called him ants. So we had pictures growing up of Devil Ants and the Hatfields all, all in the house. Well, Bill, what really happened? <laughs> what really happened? I'm not going to get into that because there's too many cross-cultural divides on that one. But uh, what I think what Kevin Cosner missed in his fantastic production when he was riding around on horses on open plains shooting that, that the hollers were so narrow you couldn't you had to walk a horse. You couldn't run him, first of all, down there, in, especially Del Barton, West Virginia, Mingo County. But I think it was more about the timber and about the bankers wanting to take the Hatfields Mountain and cut their timber. And that was, again, it was about commerce. It wasn't necessarily about a pig or about a girl who was with a guy. So we come back to commerce. You mentioned wearing the clothes and it's about commerce. Or we go to West Virginia and it's about timber and coal mining and the families caught in that ebb and flow of what's happening maybe beyond them. They don't have the power to control, so they try to control what's near to them. As a boy growing up in West Virginia, did you ever imagine you would be at some palatial palace in Miami with some famous designer? What took you out of West Virginia and carried you all the way to this table where we are now? A Fourth of July parade that I couldn't participate in. I was asked to ride the fire engine in the little town of Ripley, and my grandma June didn't want me to do that. And she kept me, for whatever reason, kept me in the house that day, and I could hear the parade in the distance. And I just made a vow that someday I would travel the world. That's what I said to myself. I'll go wherever I want and see the world. So that was, let's say, 64. So by 78, I was in New York City and within six months living in Paris and Milan and off on a 25-year career of being a model, an actor, um, having TV uh, shows and commercials. And the exposure I had was unbelievable. But in West Virginia, at that time, my family were coal miners in Mingo County. Do you remember a film called Mate Juan? Mm-hmm. That was some of my kin, too. And, you know, they were fighting, you know, the company store who owned everything, and they were perpetual, basically, uh, in debt, even though they were working 10, 12 hours a day in the coal mines. And they never had a chance to escape that. And West Virginia was a beautiful land with pristine crystal waters with trout streams, and they start strip mining and cutting off the whole tops of mountains. It really made it even harder for people to escape West Virginia. There's nowhere to go. Um, either you're into the coal mines or you're not. And um, there's a lot more to West Virginia than that, obviously, now. But back in those days, there was not for most people. 
In order to be a successful model, you have to have a, a good look. And you're a handsome man. When you were a boy, did you find yourself standing out of the crowd? Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. What, what, what was it like? So a lot of times people, when people have this, have the asset of, of, a, of what's considered classic attractiveness, it's not always considered a plus. What was that like for you as a boy? Well, I think you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. For me, back in those days, um, I had such huge ears, and I had Coke bottle glasses, and I couldn't even get a girl to hold my hand. <laughs> that was the way it was. I got beat up a lot because I did wear glasses, and I was geeky looking, And but the great thing was I could run fast, and so that ended up serving me well because I got a scholarship and went to Ohio University and ran track at a very high level, competed, and still was not considered a great-looking guy. Somehow in my 20s, my mid-20s, um, I got contacts and I grew into my ears and, uh, and my hair looked okay. And somebody on an airplane said, oh, you know, you should model. And I go, what's that? I don't, I don't know what that is. They go, no, you, could, you can make money and travel the world and, and have a great time doing it and introduced me to Wilhelmina Agency in New York City. They rejected me three times. I didn't have the right pictures, the good enough pictures. And I was coming down from the 12th floor on an elevator after being rejected the third time. And the door opens up on the seventh floor. And this beautiful six-foot woman gets on. And she goes, she goes, hi, honey. She goes, you're with our agency? I said, no, ma'am. She goes, well, why not? And I said, well, I just got turned down by, by Mr. Dan Dealey. She goes, well, really? Well, come on upstairs with me. And she marched me into Mr. Dan Dealey's office, and she says, Dan, this is Bill Curry uh, from West Virginia. Do you remember him? He goes, oh, oh, yes. She goes, well, he's going to be with our agency now, and he's going to do um, editorial and commercials and catalogs and probably become an actor and take good care of him. So if it wasn't for that chance meeting, I'd still be the big-eared boy with the glasses. One of the first things I did was, was this photo shoot with these guys who had, I'd seen all through the 70s in the magazines. It was like walking into a, a room full of movie stars. I mean, these guys were amazing. They, they show up at the booking in suits. They were impeccable guys. And I thought, I, I can't be here. I, I mean, I'm, I can't pull this off. What I did was work really hard to get in front of the camera every chance I got to learn how to, how to be photogenic. Even when I got to the point where I was doing the very, very high-end campaigns and the magazine covers, I could put my glasses on and go into any nightclub or bar and people wouldn't recognize me because I'm not that image. So I learned how to take a good picture and I grew into my ears. <laughs> so what propelled you out of West Virginia? You said you ran track in college. Was that how you ran away from home? Yes. Yeah, I, I went to Ohio University and, and that was a great time. That was a, a, a really fun time. I got there in 71. A lot of my friends were track athletes from in Brooklyn and uh, Jamaica and, you know, great sprinters. And I started hanging out with those guys and they would take me home to Philadelphia. Um, and I got involved in some of the street actions uh, against the Vietnam War, against uh, the racism that was happening in the country then. I got to go to Jamaica in 1974, got to meet Bob Marley before he was world famous and got to see a third world. That was really my first trip out of the country was Jamaica. That changed my life completely. West Virginia was still my heart. You know, my, my kin still there, my aunts and my uncles, and they always call me Billy Wayne, Billy Wayne Jr., how you doing? And, and uh, to this day, the ones that are surviving still call me that. 
So when you were traveling around the world and thinking back on West Virginia, was it a source of inspiration? I was just very glad to come from good people. People of West Virginia are just good people. If I brought you there right now, they'd give you a hug, kiss you on the cheek, and sit you down and feed you. That's the way it is. And that humanness and that kindness, learning how to be polite, uh, which I was taught by my great aunts how to be polite, served me well all over the world. Didn't matter if I was sitting with, you know, Princess Diana, or, or I was sitting with a, an Ebon headhunter in, in Borneo. Human beings are human beings, and we just have respect for one another and laughter, and that can overcome any barrier whatsoever. And sometimes that respect means not saying much for a while, just sitting and listening. And that training has served me well as a photographer, you know, going on assignment in different places and showing up and not knowing anyone and having to get the shot. I've learned to immerse myself in what they're doing show genuine interest because I am interested and allow them to open up so that's been good training back in those days as a model to be a photographer yeah I know you've worked with a friend of ours Michelle McCormick Mm -hmm. and you and Michelle have traveled around the world a bit and done some fairly dramatic Mm -hmm. projects Mm -hmm. I'd like for you to tell me a story about some of those experiences we worked on a project uh, called Legacy's Gift, and it started out, we were going to do photographs and writings on tribal elders. And I'd already photographed a few, and, and Michelle had interviewed them. And then we found a lady here in Taos named Margaret Mascarena, since she was a curandera faith healer, and she was 100. And we went to her really humble adobe home, and the lady just had such love and such light in her presence, she showed me her hands, and on one side they were wrinkled, 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 and she turned them over on the palms, and they were smooth, baby smooth, beautiful, beautiful palms, and, and I asked her, how, how is that possible? She is, this is God's love. This is God's love, and she would touch people with these oils for 60 years or so, and she said, this is what it really is. You look this way, but this is how we really are if we allow ourselves, and we shifted from going to photograph only tribal people. We went to uh, Northern California to a Benedictine monk that had been captured by the Japanese and, and was in prison camp. And, and he had planted a garden in this desert 30 years prior, and now it was blossoming and beautiful. And he would walk in his robes and tell us stories. And, and then it was a, 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 a lady named Ida Lee who was a poet in Watts, and we photographed her. And then we went to Texas and photographed her uh, Presbyterian minister who had the biggest congregation in Dallas at the time. It was fantastic. Um, I was speaking of Joseph Campbell, Power of the Myth, Mm -hmm. and he, he reached out and touched me, and he smiled at me. He says, you know it's all a myth, don't you? And he smiled. He said, but don't tell anybody I said that. And he walked away. And I'm like, what incredible people. And they were all in their 90s and 100s. And they, they had all dropped any um, pretense of trying to be something that they weren't. They were just burning bright human beings that had a lot of love to give. So Michelle and I worked on that, and we haven't had it published. There was a lady here in Taos, uh, Ruth Hatcher, who was the head of the local Quaker group. And you go into her home, and literally it was like 1946. She lived by candlelight. She had a well. Uh, her dress was homespun. Uh, it, was, it was time travel. 
And it's, it's always a, a humbling honor to meet people like that who live authentic lives, who are authentic human beings and have not been uh, infiltrated or overlapped with the culture, the monoculture we're in now. So that always brought me back to West Virginia because my family, they lived close to the land. They, they were genuine human beings and they, they taught me, if anything, to, to be authentic. The woman who wore the homespun dress mm-hmm. with the candles and took you back in time to 1942, mm-hmm. she's on one end of the spectrum. Then you travel to some of these big designers' homes where you have the opulent parties. Can you reflect on the contrast between that experience and those people in those opulent experiences and the homespun woman at the table with the candles? What are the similarities between the two and what are the differences? The similarities is I think everyone uh, wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be acknowledged for whatever they do. Um, I did the Valentino campaign in 1981, and I was picked up at the airport by, by his partner, Giancarlo, and they put me uh, in a, a bulletproof Lanza car with a, with a phone in the car. It was like James Bond. I, it was 1981, never seen anything like that. And we drive out to his palazza out in the country, and, and there are guards at a big gate, and you go through, down this half-mile driveway with real Greek statues. And when we get there, there's these Portuguese houseboys with white gloves with your drink waiting. And then you walk in, and in the first room was a, an art gallery, Monet, Degas, Botero, Van Gogh, real on the walls of, of when you walk in and I'm like oh I'm out of I'm out of a league now you know so and then we go to another room and it was all like ancient India beautiful smells and carpets and and fantastic um art uh, sculptures and 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 the, the place was like Versailles the ceilings were painted and the, the taste was impeccable and the fabrics were beyond belief and I sit at the table and Valentino comes into the room Billy ciao I'm so glad you come to Roma and he sits down and I'm sitting there and I I felt out of body I did I felt out of body like how can a West Virginia guy be here I don't even know which fork to, to take to eat. I don't know what's going on here. You know, it's like all shook up. They're, they're like, they're talking Italian. Ma scusi, uh, we're going to speak some Italian. And so they're talking Italian. And then they ask me, Billy, what do you want to do with your life? What do you, I'm so happy that you're here in Rome. This weekend, we're going to Yugoslavia with, with Jackie, Jackie O. And I'm like, Jackie O? They go, yeah, Jackie O. You come on the barca with us. You come to the boat. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good with that. And no, what do you want to do? And I said, well, there's a movie star named Laura Antonelli I want to meet. Oh, yes, we can introduce you to Laura Antonelli. And so the food starts coming out. And the food was fantastic. And the, the next day we're at the photo shoot and, and here I'm in Valentino's clothes and with all his assistants dressing me with, I think it was with Jerry Hall or someone, you know, and it was like this big, big deal and Iman came in and, and I just thought, I am so out of my league here, what am I doing? But I faked my way through it. The pictures came out good, I got more work and there were more adventures, you know, but the difference is that they're fast paced to make money and to have adulation and to have power. That's what that world was about. Ruth Hatcher was about bringing people into her home one-on-one and exchanging heart. Very different situation. What was 
beautiful about the humble setting as opposed to the grand palace was that there was no pretense. There was no falsity of uh, intent. There were no agendas. It was sitting down and it was a timeless feeling with Ruth Hatcher. With the Valentino people, it was very exciting, but it was very manic. So it's a difference between hardcore heavy metal and Beethoven, <laughs> completely different music, different rhythms, yeah. Living in Manhattan for 22 years, I saw and experienced many powerful people one-to-one -one sometimes as a group. And you see someone that has all the money in the world and they're not necessarily enjoying themselves because they're trying to hold on to it or try to project more of it. I had an adopted Karuk grandfather named Charlie Tom and at one point I had a, some property in Montana and we built a sweat lodge and he came to help do that from California and we were going to have a ceremony that week. And he lived very humbly, traveled around the country. People sponsor him. And he came, and, and the first thing he did is sing a red-tailed hawk song. And he said, boy, you know, I'm going to have those medicine birds come in here and bless this place, the eagles and the hawks. Maybe they'll come in a good way and fly over us. Well, I had never really even seen an eagle or red-tailed hawk fly around the property. Within 10 minutes, two red-tailed hawks flew in, and a golden eagle flew in, and they're flying above us. And I had tears in my eyes. I'm like, Grandfather, how did you do that? He goes, you know, I don't know how I do that. I just never forgot how. And I realized, as human beings, we all have that connection to the earth, but we've forgotten it. And so rather than calling in more money, he was still connected to the earth, and that was real power to me. Here at the Pueblo, I have a friend, Robert Mirabal. He's a Grammy award-winning musician. And he's traveled all over the world and performed incredible stages with the, the best musicians in the world, had his own PBS special. He's now the sacred seed keeper on the Pueblo. And he's also one of the, the tribal ceremonial leaders in the Kivas. Him and his daughters just walked 25 miles one way, uphill, up the mountain, to the sacred blue lake and back. And that's power. He grows his own blue corn, his squash, his beans. He is able to take a bison, a buffalo, every year and skin it out and have food for his family. That's power. The people in the cities that have the power, electricity goes off, they have the same problem we all have. How are we going to get water? How are we going to get food? And we've seen with these terrible hurricanes. We're, we're three days from the edge. I had a really, really tough lesson. It was a good lesson, but I was sitting in the Northside Diner and this was in 2012 when the Mayan prophecy was supposed to come true, whatever that was, I don't know. And I was sitting with a friend, she was French and a friend from Venezuela. We were talking about the Mayan prophecy and it just so happened that one of the elders from the Pueblo came walking in to sit with us and he sat down. The Venezuelan guy goes, hey, um, what's going on with this 2012 thing? The elder looked at him and goes, yeah, I heard about that. You know, here's how I take that. Over on the Pueblo, we have clean water and we've got really good food to eat. And you know, we're gonna be okay because we have wood to keep us warm in those adobes. But you guys, not gonna be so good for you. And I just looked at him and he just smiled and went back to eating. But what he was saying, basically, his life has not really changed for a thousand years. But we have. We're dependent. We're interdependent now. Everything is interdependent. How is it that we can grow our apples here, but we have to get apples clear from Venezuela to be shipped in or wherever they come from? It's crazy. If the computers go down, we're in bad shape. And so the real power lies in the human heart, the love you express for your neighbor right here in front of you. 
locally, what's going on with community. That's the real power. I've seen the other power abused greatly from millionaires in New York who are now politicians who have achieved the highest possible political office. And so I think that um, there's so much to be done to learn from tribal people how to live like human beings, because some ways we've forgotten, I think. Yeah. For me, power, it's all about personal sharing and personal kindness. In the last years, I started doing massage therapy, and I went back to school for two years and worked on a degree in integrative health. Took my national MBLEX boards and got certified and bona fide as a licensed massage therapist. Before that, I'd been working in the Maldives and, the, and it, also in Thailand at a resort called the Six Senses Spas, which is an organic-based spa. I found that power comes from holding space for people that are suffering and in pain. I had a lot of great teachers that showed me that in the stillness and quiet of just holding someone in love, their well-being and their wisdom body can actually help heal them, as opposed to allopathic medicine where you interject something, whether it's a pharmaceutical or a procedure. Sometimes those procedures are a must, uh, of course. But uh, I've been blessed now to be involved with the Taos Holistic Clinic here. And it's been extraordinary to be able to be with an allopathic doctor, a doctor of oriental medicine, a naturopath, an Ayurvedic doctor, and to do body work on people that, that have real issues, cancer issues, heart issues, diabetic issues, and to work in a loving space in a collaboration way with these people in the same room. So the paradigm shift of healing is going back to a place where the power comes from within of ourselves. We don't necessarily have to look outside of ourselves and give it to someone else to heal us. We have the ability to have well-being our, ourselves. And that's a different kind of power that I've learned in the, in the healing arts that I didn't really apply before. It seems to be a path I'm on deeper and deeper now, even to overtake my love of photography and, and travel. It seems to me, in this discussion of power, what you've described with the woman in the homespun dress, and then your engagement with some of these folks who passed through your life, like the man who called the eagle in, mm -hmm. and now talking about the power you sense when you're working in the healing profession versus the power we talk about in New York, and I maybe New York is getting a bad rap. There's a, there are a lot of people there who have all kinds of wonderful experiences. But this power that you are talking about, the, the power of the political, the power of the money, it almost seems like we're not even talking about the same thing. And would power be the right word to describe this? Are we, do we need another word to describe these two states of being other than power? What is it? power resides in all of us because we're a vital living force. It's what we choose to do with our life at various points in our life that really makes the difference for ourselves and other people. I know from being in a lot of healing ceremonies, there's aspects of self and collective consciousness that we have not even begun to reach yet. I've had the privilege of a great professor here in Taos, Angelica Koch, and she is one of the foremost authorities on homeopathy. And I've had firsthand experience from her addressing my issues with frequencies of the homeopathic medicine. And it's extraordinary when you see something so simple, so powerful, but it goes into the realm of quantum physics and 
there's just seems to be an overlap now of the traditional scientific and then the alternative traditional healing that are overlapping and that to me is the most fantastic thing that's happening here in Taos. When I was here in the 90s and lived here you were hard-pressed to find three massage therapists. Now there's every modality of massage that is here in town. There are so many different healers and people that are practitioners available for people to come here to this mountain area and really explore the alternative and integrative health possibilities. So it's an exciting time we live on um, at this time, but it's also precarious time as well. We're living at a point where I heard prophesized by a lot of elders in different tribes clear back to the 80s, the time of acceleration of, of technology, and we're not quite catching up spiritually yet to be able to handle that kind of power. We're abusing the power, extracting resources way too fast. Resources that we label as resource can be the fish in the ocean. When I was in the Maldives, I was shocked to find out there are hardly any sharks anymore because they've killed them for their fins. You hear about a surfer being attacked in Australia uh, have his leg bitten off, but you don't hear about the seven or eight million, ten million sharks a year that get their fins cut off and just float to the bottom and die. So our technology has surpassed our ability to spiritually hold that power. There has to be an adjustment. And Grandfather Charlie Tom, the, the Karuk medicine man, used to say, you don't have to worry about the Mother Earth. She'll take care of everything, and that includes us. We have to worry about ourselves and take care of each other because we're the ones lost on the journey. And it's very, very real now. In your healing work, you see all kinds of illnesses. Mm -hmm. What have you seen happen in healing work that astounded you in terms of someone getting better? Six years ago, I was in the Maldives Islands, and there was a family that came to this resort with their daughter, and they had to carry her on the island, and she had had a severe fracture in her lower leg, and it was not healing properly, and she had a swelling that got infected, and it was very painful, and the doctors basically had given up on how to address the situation other than pharmaceuticals and more antibiotics, and they were talking about amputation. They were here on this family vacation to give her a chance to enjoy herself before they were gonna cut the leg off. There was an acupuncturist practitioner there, and I was doing craniosacral therapy work on the island, on this resort, and he and I decided to collaborate together. So we started with her, she was 11 years old, had never meditated, never been taught to meditate, and that's the first thing we did, was teach her about breath and how to drop in and how to relax. And he would do the acupuncture with the needles, and I would do the craniosacral work, and we'd do that together at the same time. And we did it twice a day. And the fourth day invited her family to come in and taught them different holds uh, on her body. And now there was grandmother, mom, dad in the room. By the fifth day, the swelling started going down. By the seventh day, she's hopping around without her crutches. And within two weeks, she's running on the beach. Now, is that because of our treatments? Is it because we empowered her to know that she had this deep place within her to go to? Is it because we included her family to come in to partake in that hands-on loving and to do it afterwards when we were gone? I don't know the answer to that. A miracle, it was pretty close to something that was spectacular for sure. She's never had a problem since then. 
that's the closest thing I've seen to something that was miraculous uh, in its demonstration after she received everything. It's a combination of everything. I did have an experience in the Maldive Islands. It's a Muslim country, and I'd go to um, these little fishing islands, and I w went with a friend of mine who worked at the resort, the Six Senses Spas, to his island. It was maybe 50 minutes away by boat. And we got off the boat, and there was no electricity. They still fished with the nets. They had sailboats. It was just like it's always been for three, 400 years. And I see this elderly lady coming. She had this bright orange wrap around her head, and she was walking, and she had these eyes that were just mesmerizing. And I said, do you think that she would allow me to take her photograph? And he said, oh, absolutely. I know her. She'll, she'll be happy to do that. And before I could get my camera up, the lady came and put out her hand and touched me. And when she touched me, I popped out of body. I was outside my body looking down on this lady. And she's smiling at me. And I'm thinking, what in the world just happened? It was like an electrical charge. And it lasted, it seemed like a very long time, probably just seconds. But I was back again in her presence. And I was so stunned by this, I couldn't even raise my camera to take a picture. And I was shaking. I was literally shaking. And I'm thinking, what just happened? And I realized that we're all frequency beings and that she was a grounded earth frequency. She doesn't have TV, she doesn't have cars, she doesn't have any Kardashian news. <laughs> she is just there with the fish, the flow of the earth. I had come, even though I was working at the, at the resort spa, which is very tranquil, I'd come from America with a whole different frequency. And it's, to her, she saw me immediately saw who I was and she grounded me but the grounding of my body popped my spirit out of my body it took me a while to come back so that was something that was unexplainable but real absolutely real and I re realized that all the years with tribal people I still had never gone and lived with them for a year or two years and actually immersed myself and become tribal I always had the luxury of taking off back to my New York apartment or, you know, my house in Montana or somewhere. So that was pretty miraculous, that, that particular thing. And that's touch. That has to do with touch. And in the touch, we have every communication there is. We have all the knowledge there is to know. We have everything of healing in us to share with other people. And that is exciting. That's miraculous in itself to be able to be around a group of practitioners in their different disciplines, including an allopathic doctor that understands that touch and connection is the most important. I had heart arrhythmia very bad five years ago, and it went on for two years to the point where I thought I was going to have to have surgery. And when I came to Taos, the cardiologist, I went in to see him, and he's, he's on his computer, never looked at me, never touched me, never really even had a connection with me, and basically said, yeah, we can do a procedure tomorrow called an ablation. We'll go in and we'll, we'll take care of it, schedule it out front. And I left feeling, first of all, I don't have insurance. I can't afford it. Second of all, I really don't want invasive surgery in my body. And I was introduced to the doctor of oriental medicine, Lily Bleeker, and she, who's here in Taos, and when she saw me, the first thing she did was come and hug me. And she put her hand on my heart. And she says, you have a broken heart. You have a broken heart. We're going to take care of that. 
And I just cried. I just cried and cried. And she did the, the treatments on me. And I had arrhythmia so bad that I thought I was going to leave the planet many nights. Within 15 minutes, complete calm heart, absolutely calm. We got up from the treatment. She said, here's some herbs. Take these. You're lacking in magnesium, potassium. You have had adrenal burnout. We're going to address that issue. And that's been three and a half years ago, and I don't have heart arrhythmia. So there's power in touch. Mm -hmm. There's power in recognition. There's power in acknowledgement. And I think that as a, as a body worker now, the most wonderful, uplifting experience is to be able to hold someone in a place that they can relax and drop in to their own well-being and get off the table and say, yes, I'm going to get better. I'm going to heal this condition. And that's real power. That's real power. And I've seen that over and over again in, in the clinic with people that have been really pretty far gone that have turned it around. Why do you think people hesitate to allow that kind of touch to happen in their lives? I, I like touch. I know a lot of my friends like touch. There are a lot of people who don't want that. Why is that? I think it's because we're disconnected from the earth. We don't even touch the earth. In urban environments, you never touch the earth. You, you're on concrete, you're in a car, you're in your apartment, you, know, you're, you, don't, you don't smell, you don't interact with um, the earth, the trees, the water, the, the sky. We're cut off. So we've become super insulated from reality in a way. And that includes other human beings. You're too busy to touch. You're too busy. It's not appropriate. It's uh, politically incorrect. It's not proper in the workplace. You know, people will think that I'm being sexist or, you know, making an approach to somebody by just reaching out and touching someone. And I think that people that live close to the earth, like we do here in northern New Mexico, if you walk down the street into the farmer's market, I'll get six great hugs from people that I know that aren't necessarily my inner circle or my friends but they're so loving that, that there's no label. You know, you just receive that love. In cities, there's just a grand gulf of indifference toward other people. The, the empathy is lacking, and I think that, that we take that on in ourselves. We don't even have empathy for ourselves any longer because we're too busy trying to make something happen. As we are moving toward the end of the hour, I'd like for you to talk about listening you mentioned listening earlier. In storytelling, they say listening is one of the most important elements in storytelling. Listening. Well, listening is really everything, isn't it? It's, it's listening to our heart's desires, listening to our true, authentic self, listening to others around us, listening to what is being played for us in the wind and in, in the light dancing. You can even hear the light dancing sometimes. It's, it's not about seeing, it's about listening. And listening means being still, being quiet, and listening to the silence. In craniosacral therapy, we have a, a technique and, and you work on the still points in the neck. And the still points are Sometimes when people get on the table, myself included, I, when I, before I knew about craniosacral therapy, I would get on the table and I would say, well, this is kind of hokey. This is when they're not really doing anything. I'm just lying here. Nothing's really happening. And within five minutes, the hour's gone 
and you're getting off the table and you could barely speak because you went so deep. As a practitioner, I've seen it, people come in very much chatter in their mind, very much fear in their heart, in their body. The fear is great in them. You can feel it. It's, it's tremendous. They're, they're afraid, how are we going to pay the bills? How, how are we going to keep our house? How, how are we going to put our kid through college? How am I going to be able to keep my job? So they come in with this fear and this mind chatter. And sometimes they're talking, 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 and all of a sudden it just stops. And I just listen, and I listen to their breath, and I listen to their heart, and I listen to their rhythms in their body. And then it's just silence, sometimes for 50 minutes. And in that 50 minutes of silence, they hear more about themselves than they do in all the conversations they have in their life. And they get off from that table understanding truly how to listen. And that's in silence, in meditative thought. When you listen, what do you hear? I think that I've gotten to the point where when I listen to the answers that I have, the questions have all changed and none of the answers apply anymore. So I'm listening for the next question to contemplate that and how that applies to the journey that I'm on now in time and space, in this place that I'm at. And I think I, I listen to myself in more gentle, gentleness than I have before, and not such a harsh critic and a harsh judge. And I listen to love, I listen to kindness. That to me speaks more than, than any kind of position in life. And again, it can be in Machu Picchu with the Quechua speaking um, Kyoto Indian. It can be at, uh, sitting on, a, on an airplane once with Desmond Tutu and talking to him. If, if there's a real listening with the heart, so that's where it's the listening is, is with the heart, that's the most beautiful place to be in life. And not just with people you know, but the people that you meet every day is a, is a beautiful gift. Here in Taos, it's extraordinary. You can go get a cup of coffee and you sit and talk to someone and have a fantastic 20-minute, 30-minute conversation. We take time for each other here. We listen to each other. We talk to each other. And that person leaves, and then another friend sits down. And they go, oh, did you know who that was? I go, no. They go, oh, they won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1976. But you would never know that they had that accomplishment. But that wasn't the point. The point was you had that 30 minutes, 20 minutes together, speaking from the heart in a beautiful, real, authentic place. And that's healing and loving. And that in itself is a miracle here in Taos that we are able to do that. Bill Curry, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to spend this hour in conversation with us. I, I've learned a lot, and I thank you very much for it. Thank you, Navi. See you soon. And there you go, my friends, my conversation with Bill Curry. Now you know a little bit more about the fashion world, about photography, the healing arts, and Bill's home state, West Virginia. So thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. 
Always broadcasting first on WPVM LP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. We really do appreciate it. Couldn't do it without you. If you would like to know more about community radio, you can always go to WPVMFM.org and find out all kinds of stuff about what's going on in the community radio world. If you would like to join me on Saturday morning for my Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session, I would love to have you. We gather every Saturday morning a bunch of writers and we just write to our heart's content for an hour starting at noon Eastern Time. 10 o'clock mountain time and wherever else at the top of the hour you are in the world you can always find the link at imaginativestorm.com imaginativestorm.com and you can always reach out to me at jamesnave.com nave is spelled n-a-v-e you can email me through my website i would love to hear from you what's going on with you what kind of questions do you have What would you like for me to do in this show that would benefit your life better? And on that note, I'll close with a quote from Charles Wright. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back that you didn't know you had had in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy? So indeed, what is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you? I wonder. I'd love to know. Thanks again for tuning in. I really do appreciate it, and I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.